Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Common Law Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. It's springtime. Yay! Here in Boston. I suppose if you're one of our New Zealand listeners, then... It's fall. It's autumn time for you. <laughs> but here where we are, it's springtime, and the plants are waking up, and the flowers are blooming, and it's just lovely out there, and there are so many colors, and we like it. Yes. And at this time of year, we always get lots and lots of questions about wildcrafting and foraging, because people are excited to see plants, and they want yeah. to bring them home with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we thought that it's definitely time to talk about that, um, talk about how to do, how to uh, wildcraft and how to forage some plants safely. Um, the safely part is important there, both for you and also, I, like, almost more importantly, for the plants. Yeah, and since we live in a city, we're going to focus this on urban wildcrafting. Yeah, although these... All of this stuff would apply if you live in a suburb, or even if you live in a rural area, you might be thinking like, oh, well, it's easy here because there's just plants everywhere, but um, there's things to think about no matter where you are. Indeed. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. But first, we must say the thing. (laughs) We are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in our podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the U.S., So these discussions are for educational purposes only, as if that wasn't good enough, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, educational purposes are really good purposes. (laughs) Yeah, we're into them. Uh, Everyone's body is different, so the things we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some information to think about and to research further. We want to remind you that your good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision in considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we have some shout-outs. We do. I'm really excited. We have a shout-out to Liz in Florida and her niece and her sister, who all love the pod, and we love you, too. Talk about family herbalism. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yay! And we have one for a thousand shells who wrote us a review on iTunes. Hey, thank you. Reviews help people find our podcast so we can get more plants to more people. Yes, and also I noticed in your review that you're a nurse, and we just want to take this opportunity to say we love nurses. Nurses make this world a better place. Thank you so much. Nurses work so hard, and they're really, they're really wonderful. Yeah, I love nurses. Nurses are cool. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, another shout out to Victoria on Facebook, who says she loves the pod. Aw, thank you. And Georgia, who was actually mentioning the pod in a discussion thread on one of our online courses. So that was really cool. Um, and we also have... She's crossing the information streams. That's what I was thinking. I was like, you know, it's like, oh, this like circular, you know, cool, whatever. Yes. Yes. Um, And we also want to thank our new supporting members this week. So a big thank you to William and Christy and Shelly and Mon. Thank you so much. Yes, we do it. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Ding. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some really good guides to wildcrafting out there in the world. Um, And one of my favorites comes from the herbalist Howie Brownstein. Um, and so we're going to put a, a link to that in the show notes here. He has a article. Is it It could be. I never know how to. We just everybody just says Howie. Yes. Yeah. 
That's Howie. It's basically. just Howie. It's Brownstein or Brownstein, but I think it's Brownstein. One of those. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Howie, uh, if you're listening, can you just please shoot us an email and <laughs> remind us which one it is? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's got great, a great article about wildcrafting for beginners, and um, it's just fantastic. There's tons of great stuff in there. Um, I've learned a lot from listening uh, to how he speak about wildcrafting at conferences. And He is, I think, like this generation's complete and total expert on wildcrafting. I mean, <laughs> there, there certainly are others... Um, you know, maybe who aren't even teaching or whatever, and they're just out there being yeah. experts. But Absolutely. but in, in terms of, like, if you really want to learn wildcrafting at a level that is just... Way like, up there. Yeah, like, bonus whatever, I don't know, some level metaphor from some kind of game that I don't have time <laughs> to play. <laughs> uh, but he's really, he's really where it's at. Yeah. So yeah, so we'll link to that, um, and at the end of that article, he has a really great uh, wildcrafting checklist um, that is a series of questions to ask yourself uh, when you are considering a wildcrafting trip or a wildcrafting action, and um, we just love it. We think it's fantastic, so um, the link's in the show notes. Bounce over there. Check that out. Everybody should read it, but I also thought if we were to take that um, list and kind of condense it down to first principles, we would get something like this. One, know the plant. Two, know the land. And three, know the community. And so that's the way we're going to frame our discussion today. And uh, that's that. So let's do it. So let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with knowing the plant. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, when we're thinking about knowing plants, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean knowing what kind of medicine does the plant have? What kind of actions does it exert on the body? What are its energetic qualities? And how does it best prepare it up into a medicine? And all of those things are things we want to know about the plants we work with. Hey, I want to add something. Uh, what about knowing its life cycle? Well, that yeah. That specific plant's life cycle and how many years does it take before it produces a seed? And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, because the ones that I had started to name there were more about after you've got the plant, what are you going to do with it? Mm. Right? But when we're talking about wildcrafting, we need to know more, like you say, about the plant itself, about its life cycle, about what kind of environment it grows in, um, what kind of friends it has, what kind of dependencies it has, things like that. Um, so those are all going to be critical. But we could stay, start even a step before then. And remember, one of the things we're trying to do with wildcrafting is keep ourselves safe. <laughs> um, and so the very first thing I'd say is to know the poisonous plants in the area where you hope to go out and do some foraging. Yeah, and I'm anytime that the, we say the word poisonous plant, I just have this need to say there aren't that many of them. <laughs> like, it, it's not... I, I think that in our generation, or maybe the last couple generations, we have this concept that nature will hurt you. And nature is just nature, and we will hurt you too. So, like, we humans, you know, like, anything can be harmful, but we have this idea that, like, all of nature is harmful because we don't really understand it anymore. And, and, and there's all this talk about poisonous plants and, oh, never taste anything because it might be poisonous. And I think so much of that just comes from the fear of unfamiliarity. And so I just want to remind everybody that there aren't that many plants that will kill you. There are some. There definitely are some, but there 
the majority of them will not kill you. And this is good news because it means that learning the, the actual dangerous plants in, yeah. your, in your area won't be too difficult. It, there won't be three dozen of them that you need right, to nail down. Right, right. It's not an impossible task. So once you've just nailed down the number, the, the plants in your area that are actually going to harm you, and then there will be another number of plants that like might give you diarrhea, mm-hmm. you know, you know, whatever. They won't kill you. They could just be very unpleasant. All right, well, learn those two because there's a, a finite number of those. And once you've got those down and you're really solid on them, well, okay, you've done the work. And now it's a lot safer for you to go out and start uh, start doing some sort of experimental learning. Yeah. Okay. So we want to know out there things like, say, you know, water hemlock, um, yeah, that's one in our area. Yeah, that's one that, that's around here, and it's and it's possible, especially for a, a new um, wildcrafter or new herbalist to to mix that up with other plants, um, like wild carrot, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, telling them apart is not too hard, but you do need to take the effort to do it. So, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the first thing. We also want to be aware of the at risk or the endangered plants in our area. And this could also be part of um, your kind of planning phase when you say to yourself, I'd like to go out and wildcraft some fill-in-the-blank. Um, is that plant uh, one that actually has an abundance out there in the world? Or is it a plant that has you know, started to lose habitat or has to come under threat because of you know, changing weather patterns or whatever else? And um, you want to know that before you go out looking for it. You want to have a sense of... You know, in my part of the world, in my biosphere, what are the plants that are struggling? What are the plants that I need to um, be tending more by giving them space and, and giving them places to grow rather than by going out and harvesting? So I just want to have a tiny tangent here. Um, and I want to say that I think this is more important than knowing the poisonous plants. Because I think that there are more humans who can kill plants than there are plants who can kill humans. And that it's it's really worth recognizing that and recognizing the impact that we have on our environment. So I want to propose, and, and this is a little bit theoretical or philosophical um, in nature. I'm not really proposing that, um, that I don't know. I'm proposing a philosophy here, and I think it's worth thinking about. But I think that it is more important to know how we can harm plants than to know how plants can harm us, um, because right now we are the more harmful being. And I guess the thing that you need to think about even before you think in that term is that I think that the number one thing about knowing the plant even before knowing how we hurt plants and even before knowing how plants can hurt us is knowing that plants are living sentient beings. They may not have the sentience in the same way that we do, but there is so much science out there right now that is really confirming that plants live in communities, that they care for one another, that they sustain one another when they're sick, that they have ways of communicating and they have ways of even communicating with us. And I, I really just think that it, like the very first thing, if you're going to go out and say, oh, I'm going to get some plants, is to say that plant is alive. It has a life. It has a plan. It has 
goals and dreams in its life and they may not be ones that I can understand. Actually, they may be. Uh, the longer you start thinking this way, the longer that actually <laughs> you realize that they're the same thoughts and dreams and plans that all of us have. Mm-hmm. And, and that, um, that I don't necessarily have the right to just go and take something that is alive. Um, that's exploitation. This is why we care so much about trying, even though it's even though we fail sometimes, to not say that we use plants, but to say that we work with plants. Mm-hmm. Because the very first thing about knowing a plant is knowing that it is it is not for your exploitation. It is a living creature just like we are. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, so that was my little philosophy tangent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, know your poisonous plants, know your at-risk and endangered plants. And part of knowing them also is also knowing how can you care for them? Not just educating yourself about the theory of like, oh, climate change is coming. Oh, it's making this plant less sustainable. Oh, that is sad. Like, is there anything you could do to help? Mm. Is it a drought? Can you carry water? Um, That would be great. You know, can you nourish other creatures in your community um, can you nourish the plant creatures in your community? That's tremendously valuable. Plus, it's a free workout. So, <laughs> like, whatever your motivation is, carry water in a drought. Absolutely do that. Like, do, do the things. Take the action to, to protect the plants who are at risk, not just to learn about, oh, they're at risk. That's sad. Yeah. Like, take that another step. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, bring us back to a little more prosaic oh, sort yeah. of thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> I really all, got a little ranty there. All, no, that's all really critical, yeah. Um, but, so, here we are trying to understand the plant that we're thinking about harvesting. So, of course, it's going to be critical that you confirm the plant ID, that you know who it is that you're looking at, um, and that you are certain that it's not, um... Uh, tricking you or deceiving you or that you're deceiving yourself mm. by saying, oh, look, it's a dandelion when actually it's hawkweed or it's cat's ears or it's <laughs> yeah. one of the like two dozen different dandelion lookalike plants. Right. And um, so, yeah, so knowing lookalikes is really helpful for this. Um, when you learn a plant, it's it's very good to learn others that look similar and um, to learn. Usually with, with that, there's like one or two points of differentiation you can look at, right? Like if you look at a dandelion, you can see that it has the basal rosette of leaves, and then there's one stem, one flower. Whereas with something like hawkweed, um, it might sort of look similar on the on the, the leaf's uh, um, arrangement at first, but the leaf shape is very different. And maybe even easier to see, um, with that plant you'll have one stem that might branch several times, and then there could be multiple flowers emerging from from that single originating stem. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times with plants that, that you're you're angling at for harvesting for, for herbal medicine, um, you can tell them apart from the local lookalikes pretty easily once you get to, to know who they are. Yeah. But it's really important. A lot of people feel very intimidated about plant ID. And I was one of those people too. I I think probably for my first, like, five or eight years as an herbalist, I felt very intimidated by um, going out and making sure that I, like, would I get it right? Would I get it wrong? I, I don't know. And I felt really scared about it. So if you are also feeling that way, you're not alone. This is really, really common. Um, and I will tell you how I learned to get over that. And now 
I don't have that fear and I can identify plants even while I'm driving in a car, like at a distance. <laughs> um, and you can too. The, the, just the same way as if you think about uh, when you're driving around town and you see a friend of yours on the sidewalk and you saw them in passing very quickly, but you knew it was your friend as opposed to every other human that you know and a lot of humans that you don't know. Like, you knew for sure it was your friend. Sometimes you drive past, you're like, hey, was that? And you're not 100% sure. That's fine. But sometimes you drive past and you're really sure. So if you've had that experience, trust me, you can have that experience with plants too. And the way that you achieve it is the same. You recognize your friend because you have spent countless hours looking at your friend. And you will recognize plants by spending countless hours looking at plants. So Mm. go on a plant walk and, you know, identify some plants, get, get some information about a plant, and then don't finish. Don't say, oh, well, that was fun. Go back to those same plants and stare at them for a long time and draw pictures of them and mm. really just get it in your mind and then go back again and then go back again because if somebody takes you on a plant walk you know where those plants are they showed you so now you can go back and see them in every stage of their growth because a lot of plants look super different in the early spring versus all the way through to when they seed when they bloom and when they seed and So spend the time really looking at that. If there aren't any plant walks in your area, then um, there are online tools where you can, uh, and there's also books, The Peterson's Guide and Newcombs. Rin and I have really differing opinions. I love Peterson's. He likes Newcombs. Uh, You should work with whichever one you like best. Um, And even just Google a plant that you would like to find in your area and look at all of the photos just every single photo you can find and then go out and try to find that plant and look at that plant for as long as you can and match it up and look at each little detail just as carefully as you would a person that you love and it really isn't harder than that it is just a matter of spending the time looking Hmm. yeah so you you can do it yeah yeah absolutely Okay, so you've done that. You've looked at your plant. You know who it is. You're really certain, very certain. You know, you know what's going on. Great. So um, we're not done yet. We still need to know more <laughs> about about this particular plant or this this specimen, right? So we want to know um, how has this this individual plant or this this stand, right? This this group of uh, of one one particular plant species. How has that been doing? Recently, how has it been doing over the last year? How has it been doing over the last three years? If you are working uh, somewhere that's very close to your home and you've been there a long time, how's it been over the entire span that you've been around? Mm. You know, for the last decade or <laughs> something. I mean, we've been hanging out at the um, the piece of land that's close to our our school and our clinic now for almost ten years. Yeah, right. And there've been a lot of changes. There are over those and, years. Yeah, there've been. Um, Areas where a plant appeared and we were surprised to see it there, and then it flourished for a couple of years. I'm thinking of the Solomon Seal up on that little hill. Yeah, and right? now it's not on that hill anymore. It wasn't there when we first arrived. It showed up at some point. It was around for a while. We were fascinated by it, and this year doesn't seem to be coming it's back. Not there, yeah. yeah. So um, that's really important because if I had 
walked into that piece of land for the first time, come over around that corner up the hill and seen that Solomon seal there and said, oh, great, I love this medicine. I want to tincture this and take it home, and yeah, this is going to be great. Then I wouldn't recognize that that was an unusual appearance, and it wasn't something that was going to self-sustain. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so if you're looking at, a, at an area or a stand, you want to think like, What's been going on here recently? Is this the first time this plant's appeared in this area? Is this um, stand been growing or shrinking over the last while? How does it compare to last year? Um, can I even think about what's changed from last year to this year? Like, if I know that last year was uh, a really dry year, and this year's on track to be another dry year, and looking ahead, the long-term forecast says, yep, we're just going to be a drier climate than we used to be, then I can recognize that any plants that are still hanging on, they're having a tough time and mm. they need a little more support and they don't need me to be coming in and taking out the strongest member. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, I think too that like, even if you show up in an area and you think you see a ton of a plant, if you don't really know what that was like last year or the year before, like maybe what you see is not a lot of the plant. Maybe mm. maybe what you see is that plant in significant decline. And even maybe your definition of a lot is uh, needing calibration. Because if you see a lot, like when, when I say there's a lot of goldenrod, I'm thinking about the meadow in Royalston where there is literally, I mean, it's yellow as far as you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, until the trees start, it is yellow. And yeah, um, I mean, it's there's what there's like five acres maybe or so. Oh, I think even more than yeah. that. Yeah, that is just um, just completely goldenrod everywhere. That's a lot, you know, like but it uh, sort of that Solomon seal patch at the land that we teach at, at um, near our school here in the city. There's like, I don't know, 30 or 40 stocks. Mm hmm. And that might seem like a lot, but then in comparison to the definition of a lot of goldenrod, it's maybe not a lot. Yeah, or the definition of a lot of Solomon seal, right. like the like Cortesia sanctuary out in Oregon, with acres and acres of right, they just yeah yeah, which I'd really love to visit sometime because mm-hmm. wow, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's the kind of thing you want to be thinking about. Um, and again, that goes back to that idea that you. Or actually, that goes forward to that idea <laughs> that you need to you need to know the land. So we'll come to that in just a moment because we're still not done with knowing our plant. All right. Um, other <laughs> things we want to know about this plant are: Are we harvesting the right part of the plant? Are we mm-hmm. harvesting it at the right time of year? Right. Like for instance, um, when we say the right part, that could mean the part that's effective. Um, when we say the right time, that could be the time of year when it's the most the most potent. So something like burdock root, for instance. That plant has a two-year life cycle, and um, you come across a first-year plant, and maybe it's the middle of summer. This is not the right time to harvest, right? You want to wait until the autumn of that first year, or maybe the early spring of the second year, because those are the times when that root is going to be full of life and full of energy and full of plant constituents and vital force and everything else that we that we uh, rely on our our herbal remedies to to bring to us. And that that's not like magic or like weird woo woo whatever well i tried to name chemicals along with right energy, no you know <laughs> but like i think that again just unfamiliarity leads leads to magical thinking you know and so like 
oh, well, the energy is in the root at this time of year. Well, it is, but that's not because of some like magical cycle, whatever. Um, that is literally the exact same thing as you working out really hard for a few months and now having lots of pretty muscles to show for it. You know, <laughs> it is exactly that same thing that over the course of its first year, Burdock is intentionally growing a strong root because that strong root has work to do in the second year. And we want to harvest, if we're going to work with that root, we want to harvest it at the point that it is strongest because that's when it has the most to give. Mm. It has the most to give because it has work to do. It's mm. got to grow a tall stalk. It's got to nourish flowers that will become seeds. It has a lot to do, just like if we spend a lot of time building up muscles so that we can you know, go and lift a bunch of heavy things without hurting ourselves, we also have done a bunch of work because we have something to do. So that is where that, like, the energy is in the root really comes from because that plant is growing that root for a purpose. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay, so with that, we also need to think, though, um, this is the, the right part of the plant. <laughs> All of the books say the burdock root is the thing you work with, so uh, <laughs> that's what i got to get here. But you have to recognize that if you harvest that root, you're going to kill that plant. Mm -hmm. Right? The plant can't survive without the root. You're going to dig the whole thing up. You're going to chop it open. So um, you may, uh, you, you at least need to be aware if what you're harvesting is going to either kill the plant, and if it's a root, okay, that's really obvious. Or if it's you take, um, well, okay. yeah. So Like you've taken so many leaves that it can't photosynthesize anymore. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, but it could also be worth considering if I harvest this part of the plant have I stopped it from reproducing so if I come across an area and there's one burdock plant growing there and I don't see any others in the area then I know that if I harvest that burdock root there's not going to be any more burdock over there right yeah um so I might consider myself and say is there another part of this plant that I could work with that's not going to kill this plant or not going to stop its reproductive cycle right um, say, take a different example, maybe an herb where we harvest the, the flowers and we work with those. But you have to recognize that the flower is what precedes the fruit or the seed of the plant. And so if I harvest all the flowers off of that plant, then it's not going to be able to produce seeds this year. Mm. And that means there's, again, not going to be another generation next time around. So is there a part that I could harvest that, that wouldn't stop that or wouldn't kill the plant or wouldn't stop the reproductive cycle from going onward? Um, and it may not always be possible, uh, and that may be a reason to leave that plant alone. Right. <laughs> That's going to be the majority of the cases. Or it might be that there is burdock as far as the eye can see, mm -hmm. and it's not going to matter if you dig up a, a few roots for, you know, to, to have for yourself, um, because you can see that there's plenty available to grow strong and reproduce, and there's some from last year that is already, you know, that already went to seed and whatever, right. and now there's some from this year that's growing. Yeah, and it could also be that maybe you come back at another time, right? There could be a plant, um, maybe there's a yarrow plant, and it haven't, hasn't flowered, hasn't um, made seed yet for this year. Um, maybe yarrow's not a great example, but there, there are some plants that you could um, see them flower and then go to seed, but then the leaves are still around for a while longer. 
and then you uh, could yeah, combine. Yeah, you could actually. Yeah, you could do that. The leaves will still will probably still be like they wouldn't be as potent. You obviously would prefer to get the flowers and some leaves. Yeah. But if you were we, trying to help it propagate. Yeah, with perennials, this would be more. Yeah. More more um, reliable. Yeah. You know. Exactly. Um, something like a sage plant, maybe. Right. You know, which usually you've cultivated that yourself anyway, but yeah. you can just imagine you encounter some wild sage and you want it to remain wild and you want to harvest some leaves, but you don't want to kill the plant before it gets to drop seed and reproduce and all that. So, yeah. It's sort of like thinking about all of this, even though I just went on this whole thing about plants are beings and they're not resources and they're not for exploitation. Now I'm going to use a resource analogy, which... Okay, we're just going to get past that. Do I contradict myself? Uh, Very well, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Yes, exactly. Thank you, <laughs> so here I go. Walt Whitman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you can think about it almost like a budget or almost like your own resources where you're thinking, okay, well, oh, I only have $10 left, so I need to save it. Like, oh, there's only one burdock here, so I need to save it. And I need to make sure that it's going to propagate and and then create more burdocks so that I can, next year, I can get some, you mm. know? Mm. Um, and, and thinking about it that way, it's, we're so, we think as humans so much about what I want and what I can take. But if instead we think about ourselves in relationship and think in terms of what can I steward? Mm. And when there is sufficient, then there will be some for me. But until then, it's my job to steward this plant. And hey, there's only one burdock here as far as I can see. So maybe I'm going to just take a little extra effort to protect this burdock plant in some manner. Yeah. Make sure that it can reproduce. Yeah. And sometimes we can be even more active in helping that plant along, right? Like we could um, come back when the burdock burr has formed, uh, many burrs, and they're all full of seeds. And... um, we could learn about how this plant is naturally going to distribute its seeds, and then we could we could help that along. Mm-hmm. We could. Um, I'm thinking we were just doing this recently with some evening primrose. Yes. Um, where we had grown the plant and then harvested some of it, but then we collected the seeds and then we spread them in areas where we knew that evening primrose would thrive. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of accelerating what the plant was already trying to do itself. Yeah, yeah. and we spread it wider than maybe the plant would have had a capacity to reach Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah so there can often be ways like that that you can you can support a plant even as you harvest it and actually the spreading of seeds has always been the work of the herbalist Mm -hmm. um that has sort of been forgotten in recent times but your work is not just to harvest the medicine that you need it is also to steward the plant it is also to intentionally spread the seeds um Boy, and you can just run with that as a metaphor. I know, right? Just go right ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Take it. Have some fun with that one. (laughs) All right. So, you know, all of this kind of naturally leads us to to prefer and to start with and to focus on weeds and invasive species and plants like this that are abundant and... um, Maybe even the human people around are like, ah, there's too much of that. <laughs> um, because these plants are resilient because they are the ones that are not going to be endangered or at risk or threatened. Um, these are often plants that are closest to people anyway. And again, focusing on city herbalism here, um, many of the plants that make up the kind of city-specific uh, 
you know, biosphere mm. are plants that do like the conditions that people produce in our ground, where we have a lot more compacted earth, or maybe there's more salt in the soil, or, or whatever else going on. Um, plants that can survive those conditions are the ones that are going to be alive in the city. Um, and so you still have to do the work. You still have to make sure you ID the plant and understand its, you know, um, status and everything. But um, when you're looking at weeds, when you're looking at invasive species, then you can feel much more more confident um, in your wildcrafting and, and foraging efforts. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And it's good practice anyway because... You know, imagine that there's some amazing, fantastic, um, potent, but extremely rare herb that might be growing around you. There's probably not going to be very many of them anyway, right? And, you know, uh, even if there was enough for you to harvest right now, are you going to make that a cornerstone of your practice? No. The cornerstones of your practice should be the plants that are most accessible and most abundant where you live. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, one more thing, probably not only one more thing, but one more thing today <laughs> to talk about knowing your plants is who's your plant next to, right? Who's your plant next to right now? Who's your plant next to throughout the rest of the year? Because there are lots of herbs that are ephemeral, right? They come, they have a short season, they disappear, and they might not be apparent to you. You know, mm-hmm. o- over again at that, that conservation land close to our, our, our school, um, there are patches of um, snowdrops, yeah. There are, there's a big, enormous spread of um, lesser celandine in a part of the forest. And it's really obvious for right now, you know, for, <laughs> for a month or yeah, two at this, at this time of year. Uh, but then the plants have completed what they're doing for the year and they go dormant and they go underground and you don't see them. Mm-hmm. And you don't know that they're around there. So if I come by um, and I look at this, at this, say, yellow dock plant that's growing by the path, I might say, awesome, I'm going to dig this up, I'm going to harvest it, I see a bunch of yellow dock around here, that's great. But if I move my shovel six inches to the left, I'm cutting right into a a patch of snowdrop Mm -hmm. that really can't handle that right now. Um, And uh, I need to to be aware of what's going on here, not just in the moment that I've arrived, but again, throughout the whole year. Yeah. Um, Okay. And so this leads directly into point number two, which is to know the land, right? And as we kind of hinted earlier, um, we don't wildcraft or forage anywhere we haven't visited, I don't know, at least three times over the course of more than a whole year Yeah. before we would come up and say, now it's time to gather, now it's time to harvest. Yeah, I really want, um, I, I, re- I really want to see a, a whole, at least one whole life cycle of a particular piece of land but I'd, I'd rather see more than one life cycle. Mm-hmm. There's so many more reasons not to harvest than there are to harvest. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at, but before we're actually harvesting for, for remedies or harvesting for medicines, we can be wildcrafting for pictures. We can yeah. be foraging for encounters, you know, yes. like um, the... And, and we talk about this a lot, but like uh, much of the, the medicine or much of the the vitalizing force that we receive from plants comes from spending time with them where they actually live. Yeah. You know? Yeah, just being there with them, just observing them, taking the opportunity to look more closely, taking the opportunity to see, hey, who are your friends? Um, Just learning from the way that this plant lives in the world. These are all so important. Yeah. 
Okay, so so that's that's a big general principle for us, and we, we feel really strongly about that. And again, this applies everywhere. This absolutely applies in a city, just as much on a on a trail hike out in the woods somewhere. So you know, uh, when we talk about knowing the land, w- where are you right now <laughs> when you're when you're here with your plant? Where where are you in the world? What is around you? Um, on one level, uh, you got to think about the fact that in a city, you live amongst many other humans. And they lay claim to things. That's what humans do. Sort of a human habit, right? So do you have permission to be here? Um, Do you have permission to collect here? And, um, okay, so let's make sure you got that figured out first. And this, like, I want to say within reason to some extent, like, nobody gets mad at you for picking dandelion flowers from the park or harvesting garlic mustard leaves um, yeah, actually, people will thank you for that. Right, one. even in the areas where it is conservation land or protected mm-hmm. land or public park land or whatever, you know, somebody sees you pulling up garlic mustard, they're probably going to say, "Oh, are you did are you working for the city?" Because <laughs> we do that, right? So you know, um, so that's there are exceptions or, or wiggle room on that, but it also doesn't mean that you go around pulling them up willy nilly because again. Could be that there's some garlic mustard growing in that area right next to some, you know, dormant snowdrop or, or whatever else it could be under there. Or so. even that it's up early and, and there's actually a whole patch of nettles there that you're not oh, yeah. seeing. Um, but you go tromping through and... Yep. And yeah. Yeah. Which I guess, you know, don't go tromping through, right? Right. Step carefully. Step lightly. Know what you're standing on. <laughs> yeah. That's... that's Talk about knowing the land, right? Like right. what's directly under your feet right now. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned about somebody seeing you, and I, I do think that's important because um, oh, as yeah. herbalists, we set examples about appropriate behavior, and the people who see you may not know that you're an herbalist, and they may not know that you have a lot of consideration and education that goes into your decision to harvest a plant. Um, and so they may see you picking something and they may take that as license to do so themselves as well when they don't have any particular of the, th- of the training and thought process that you've put behind it. So um, that is something to really take very seriously and to think about um, maybe, first of all, making sure that you're not seen. Um, but if you are to... Um, you know, consider is this something that you need to be responsible for and responsible about? Do you need to have a conversation with the people around you um, who might be seeing you engage in this behavior? Um, but I personally think that it's better to to either not be seen or if you're seen to be like seen by people who know you picking dandelions out of your own lawn or out of your friend's lawn because you asked if that was okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's so critical. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, and then um, come some considerations that these are the things that people tend to ask us about first when, <laughs> when we're leading an herbal, uh, an urban herb walk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, herbal and walk. Yeah, okay. Um, so that is, what about pesticides? What about spraying for insects in this park? What about... Um, like fertilizer that they spray all over the grass over here? What about mosquito sprays that they blanket my neighborhood with? Mm-hmm. What about runoff from the roads? 
Um, what about, I don't know, other kinds of city industrial contamination in the ground that I might be considering harvesting from? And yeah, that's all. that all matters a lot. So again, knowing the land here isn't just the patch of ground that's right in front of you, but what's around, right? What's What surrounds this area? What are the... Um, what are the kinds of establishments or buildings or factories or whatever else that are that are close here or are in any way upstream? And that could be about the actual movement of water, right? Mm. Um, it could be the movement of, of air or what comes down in the rain <laughs> even in, in your city um, or your part of the world. Um, but yeah, we absolutely need to be aware of those kinds of things. And again, that's another reason to not harvest the first time you see a patch, right? If I come across... Um, some nettles in a, in a patch of, of earth um, at a park here. You know, maybe it's down by the river. And I think, great, I'm just going to take all these nettles. I might not know that there was also Japanese knotweed growing there and that the city people in their questionable wisdom have been spraying all kinds of pesticides over mm. that earth for the last five years. Right. You know? Um, so that's something to also be aware of. And I guess that's a reason to recognize the plants that are considered invasive species in your area and to try to learn what the authorities are, are doing about them. Um, because very often there will be, you know, heavy spraying of pesticide to try to kill off knotweed or kudzu or whatever else. Um, and that has consequences for the other herbs growing in that area. I actually, um, I actually have a, a control plan for knotweed because in some areas, um, people take the control of knotweed very, very seriously. And, um, so I will share with you my control plan because I think it's really valuable. Um, though I haven't managed to get any town to accept this plan I haven't quite yet. convinced them. No, so but far. maybe you will have better luck than I have. And that is that, um, if you check on the internet for the, um, price to purchase knotweed root, especially if it's encapsulated, you will see that it is a pretty penny. And so my feeling is if instead of spending all this money on herbicides that are toxic and harmful and don't work against Japanese knotweed, Japanese knotweed comes back anyway, Mm -hmm. um, instead let's employ teams of people to go harvest the knotweed. Now, of course, we're going to have to do this in a place that we haven't sprayed, but all right. Uh, let's employ teams of people to go harvest the knotweed instead and process it into knotweed capsules, which have a high demand. It is a really, really um, re- like awesome source of resveratrol, among other antioxidant things, and people love it. So we could be creating jobs and creating dollars uh instead of spending money on more pesticides and poisoning the earth, poisoning just... the earth even further. And in the areas where pesticides have, I mean, not pesticides, herbicides, in the areas where that has already been sprayed, you could give it a, a, like, you know, three or five years to recover and then harvest from there as well. And if you are concerned about an area that's being overtaken by knotweed, once you have harvested all of the nutweed root that you can, um, you know, it might take a couple of years to get it really out because mm. if there's any little bit left, it'll come back. That's fine. But it's important to then replant somebody who you might prefer to have there um, and someone who's going to grow 
you know, really assertively. So even maybe mint would be preferable to not weed for some communities. Okay, great. But these are all things, especially, especially given that if you've noticed lately, the price of herbs is going up. I mean, every order it's going up because the more people that get interested in herbalism, the more demand there is. If there are areas with invasive species, and I use big quotey marks around those words, that towns don't want to have, then why not be stewarding the places where those grow and putting other opportunistic species or other species who will grow really well and can then be sold? That would be awesome. Yeah. It's revenue income for the town. It's healthy things for the people. It's enjoyable jobs that are outdoors. And there's no chemicals involved. Great. Yeah. This is my good plan. Please take it and implement far and wide. This is a good one. If you're interested in this aspect of um, of invasives and the intersection they have with herbalism, there's a great book on the topic. Yes. It's called Invasive Plant Medicine, written by Timothy Scott. Yes. And if you're interested in the quotey marks that I put around the word invasive plant, because that is such a fraught term then you might enjoy the book called Where Do Camels Belong by Kenneth... Something. Um, Don't remember. I think it starts with a P. Well, anyway, it's the only book with that title. (laughs) If you Google the title Where Do Camels Belong, it will come right up. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. you get it. All right. So, let's see. We are watching out for chemical treatments and other kinds of pollutants that might be in the area that requires us to know... You know, how people are working on the land or working around that area, how water moves through that area. Where does that water come from, right? You know, again, this this conservation land close to our school, um, there's a pond next to a little patch of woods. Um, and the whole thing sits in kind of a bowl. You know, it's it's surrounded by land that rises on at least three sides of that area. Um, and around there, you know, there's streets, there's a parking lot, there's um I mean it's a city. There's a there's a field, you know, like a like a athletic field. Um and then there's the woods themselves. Um but we can also see that there's a lot of like soil mass for the water to move through and that by the time it gets down to the, the actual pond area then it's it's filtered through lots of organic material and mm-hmm. you know, it's probably in pretty good shape by then. So but you have to consider that for whatever patch of land it is you're thinking to harvest from. You know, there are, there are patches of land along the, the main river here in, in Boston, the Charles River. And there are some that we feel comfortable gathering a little bit from here and there mm-hmm. um, a couple times a year. And there are other areas where, you know, it's a little closer to some effluent or some runoff. And yeah. those are places where we would not, not gather anything from. Um, so you do need to do a bit of digging and a bit of, uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, not on purpose, you guys. <laughs> when I make puns, you'll know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but a little reconnaissance basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Now on the one hand, we do want to harvest from the most pristine ground possible. Yes. Of course we do. Of course. On the other hand, there isn't any. Right. And I mean, like it's I, I it's a to... it's a it's a global climate. It's a global weather system. It's like there is no escape from 
smog. There's no escape right. from, you know, pollutants in the in the rain and everything else. And yes, there are places in the world that are less damaged than others, <laughs> but uh, there's no actual getting away from this. And I think the idea that there is or there could be is deeply problematic, and it leads us to make decisions that are not actually the best for the long term. Yeah. It, it's sort of, there's a, a lot of things that can fall under the word purity. Oh, yeah. And that it, that's, a, that's a problem. Like, whether it is, well, I can never eat anything that isn't organic because it, it will make me unpure. You know, like all these ideas around purity and how they got into our, into our psyche as a society is worth some investigation and and I, I mean we eat organic food I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that but like <laughs> the occasional not organic french fry is not going to kill you like no, no part of a not organic french fry is like good for you but it's not going to kill you and um so just you know the idea is it better to say well I'm gonna do as much as I can that is that is ideal or that is optimal and the things that I can't do optimally, I'm not going to worry about them. I'm going to recognize that my body is resilient and that the work that I am doing is intentionally to create a resilient body and that I'm capable of managing some stress. Yeah. Even if that is a not organic French fry deep fried in canola oil, or even (laughs) if that is a little bit of city pollutants on a plant that was in a decent place, but not a perfect place. Like, yeah. even when we moved to Vermont um, and and we were farming there, like, at one point I realized, I'm like, oh, wait, it's all the same air. Like, you can't get away from it. And it was, like, that was such a ridiculous thing even to think, but I can literally remember having the thought, like, oh, finally, we're in the clean place now. And then, like, realizing, like, I'm breathing <laughs> it's like it's the same air and okay it's not 100 percent the same and yes it's better out in the country than in a smog-filled city and like i i'm not saying it's not better in some places than others but i'm just saying that we need to not have that concept of better be wrapped up in unhealthy ideas around purity yeah right um so yeah we do sometimes harvest from plants that were um here growing in the city but in places that were about as clean as we could as we could hope for we don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in this in this case right and you can go ahead oh i was gonna say also that plants respond to stress just like we do and that sort of idea what doesn't kill you makes you stronger um it's not wrong and it's true for plants too. So like when you grow burdock, when they grow burdock commercially, you know, they grow it in hay bales or straw bales. And that makes it very easy to harvest and it makes it easy for the root to become really long and really thick and straight and very 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 straight, which is commercially desirable. But burdock has more power when it had to work through compacted earth to build that strong root. And, you know, just like you, when you have a little bit of stress, it builds you, it builds your muscle, it builds your, you know, tenacity, it builds your whatever. And that is true for plants. A little bit of heat stress increases the volatile oil content. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. 
So we don't want a plant that is so stressed out that it is being harmed from that stress, just like we don't want as humans to be so stressed out that we're being harmed from that stress. But a little stress is good. And sometimes I really feel strongly that working with plants who grew in the same environment that I am currently living in, and they're dealing with the same stress that I'm dealing with, the exhaust fumes and the whatever else, mm. that they, the, a plant that is thriving in that environment has figured out how to get stronger from the things that didn't kill it. And right now, I too am trying to figure out how to get stronger from the things that I'm living with in my environment. And um, with the plants, we can work together on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, some other thoughts we would share with you around this are that um, for for uh, pollutants that are, you know, like complex um probably petroleum-based uh, kind of chemistry, those are going to be, um, they're going to have kind of a gradient of accumulation in different parts of the plant. And by that I mean that um, if these are sprayed on a plant or they're sprayed on the soil that a plant grows in, there's going to be more of them accumulated in the roots of that plant. Um, and then decreasing um, de- in decreasing amount, you would have less in the stems, less in the leaves, less in the flowers the fruit, and the seeds. Um, and you can kind of look at it as where does the plant absorb things, and then you get further and further away from that as you go up. So root, stem, leaf, flower, fruit, seed. And this wouldn't necessarily be true if we were talking about an apple orchard where they're spraying pesticides and the apples have already formed. Like, obviously, okay, well, now that pesticide is on the apple because they sprayed it right on there. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. Direct, yeah, application there. Yeah. Right. Um, So, you know, uh, an example from this this range, like once a year, um, I collect a dandelion flower um, harvest to make Mm -hmm. tincture of. And what I prefer to do is to gather, is to like bring a jar with me and take a long walk um, out here in the city around my home or between the home and the office um, and gather dandelions as I go and plunk them into my little jar. And by the time I get where I'm going, I have a whole jar full and I can picture it right there and I'm good to go. So yeah, there's some exhaust around. There's some this and that, you know, some of these dandelions were growing right out of the sidewalk, but I kind of want their resilience remedy i want the yeah. resilience medicine and um i'm willing to um take a little bit of what i was already breathing in anyway right. you know and feel like that's that's going to be fine i'm not going to stress about it too much you know when you make that every year also you're not taking huge doses of it you're well, taking... yeah, it's dandelion flower tincture it's like a few drops at a time yeah you're taking that <laughs> as emotional medicine yeah for emotional resilience and so so the concentration of whatever is left in the resulting product is very, very minimal, especially because you're taking so little of it at any given time. Right. And that kind of leads me to another consideration, which is that um, all the stuff I was just saying about like a a gradient of absorption there, um, a gradient of the accumulation of grossness, (laughs) (laughs) um, there would be a bit of a different consideration if we're talking about like heavy metal pollution, you know, if there's lead or mercury in the soil. Like PCBs or... Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So those those could still accumulate. They could still get integrated into the plant kind of all the way up. Um, but even at that, you can make some kind of a differentiation between different ways that you prepare the plant after your harvest, right? So if I am going to eat the thing, 
then yeah, heavy metal pollution is a really bad problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to have a whole plate of nettle leaves or whatever, if there's heavy metals in the soil, they're going to be in the leaf, and then I'm going to be eating them and consuming them and taking it all into me, and so that would be problematic, and we would avoid such a thing. But if I, um, say, make a tincture out of those leaves, tincture isn't going to extract a ton of mineral content, and again, the dose that I'm taking is very small by comparison, mm. right? You can be eating, I don't know, grams and grams and grams of nettle leaf as food, but you're only going to be taking a few drops or maybe a few droppers full of the tincture. And so the amount that you're exposed to in that, in that format is going to be much reduced. So these are edge cases. These are things that you need to make your own kind of determinations about as an individual after you've thought long and hard about the land and about the plant itself and mm. all that. Um, that we led up to, but but this is this is relevant. It is something to think about as um, herbal folk who live in cities, mm-hmm. yeah, and you know anywhere else too, really. Yes. <laughs> so okay, um, it's all the same air. So those are about knowing the land. All right. So then um, point three here is about knowing the community, and this community is big, right? The community includes lots of actors, right? What we're wondering here is who else has a relationship with this plant of any kind? And that could be other humans who, like you, might be seeking after these plants for their their medicines. Um, it could also be animals who may be seeking these plants for their medicines, because yeah. animals do that. All kinds of animals do that. Yeah. Um, uh, but they might also be eating them. For food, right. <laughs> right. Um, there could be birds that are going to rely on them. And again, you have to think through time here. You have to think fourth dimensionally, just like Doc Brown was trying to teach us to do <laughs> in the Back to the Future movies. Um, right? You have to think ahead through time, right? Are there going to be some birds who are going to come back to this plant when it has matured and grown and made some seeds? Yeah. Is this, right? is this what's going to allow birds to survive the winter? Yeah. You know, you need to think about that in the spring. Mm-hmm. And with insects, basically the same thing, right? You know, if I come and I I look at a nice patch of goldenrod and I think, oh, this is so wonderful. I'm going to make goldenrod-infused honey. It's going to be great, (laughs) you know? But then you don't realize that this is the only patch of goldenrod in this whole city park. And there might be some bees around here. And they're going to be really dependent on that goldenrod as the one of the last foods they're going to gather. Before yeah, the winter before comes. Before the winter. Right? Yeah. So. I also want to include the soil there um, because not all plants are medicine for humans. Um, some plants are medicine for soil. And a lot of plants play a role in soil remediation. A lot of plants play a role in, um, like, eco like ecosystem services. ecosystem remediation yeah. yeah and so recognizing that that the soil itself may be depending on this plant yeah. is really important yeah and then of course other plants are going to be in relationship with this plant you right know, like we could have one that goes through the soil like maybe there's a bunch of red clover growing over here and one of the things that it does is fix nitrogen in the soil right mm-hmm. like other other herbs from that family and then there's another plant over there that's dependent on the red clover being around to do that nitrogen fixing. Right, in order for the soil to be food for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a web. Uh, and 
it's probably impossible for us to know all of the relationships that our that our target herb has, but we should try. Right? Yeah, there's we no reason try. not to try. That's a reason to try harder. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think even to understand the relationship of the plants that you're looking at, like um, if if you are in like looking at one stand of a particular plant, how are all of these plants relating to one another? Um, like where is the largest one and what role does that plant play in the community that you are looking at? We, we use the word stand over and over again. And I actually think that I want to stop doing that. And I want to say community because that's what we're really looking at. When we see a, a group of plants, we are looking at a community. And so you may see like the most beautiful one that's the tallest with the largest flower and the whatever. And you may think, oh, I really want that. But do you want that? Like what role is that, is that plant playing in the community? That plant is a community leader. And mm-hmm. if you remove that plant from the community, what will happen to the community? It will collapse. So that's really important. And again, like... And I do, say, I do, I do see some folks teaching about, about gathering yeah. and being like, you have to choose the biggest, strongest, most vibrant thing to be the best medicine. And yeah. that makes sense on one level, but we have to understand the consequences of that action. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, using words like community and community leader sounds metaphorical, but there's a lot of science behind that now. And, and really recognizing that what we are looking at is a community and even that they have done work studying what happens when you do remove that largest plant. Um, and it's not actually a metaphor. That largest plant is, in fact, a community leader. And when you remove it, the community struggles. Mm. So um, not just a metaphor. Yeah. All right. So um, say we're looking at a particular community of herbs that we're thinking about gathering from, um, it's worth asking, is this the only one around, right? Is this the only uh, community of violets that is in my orbit, Mm. right, or is accessible to me? Um, Is this the most resilient community of that plant in my area right now? Um, And it's it's easy to kind of get stuck on the first thing you see, you know? Yeah. To be like, okay, I'm going to go out today. I know that there's usually some violets over in that area, because there have been for the last three years that I came to buy to visit. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to bring some home today. Great. Don't stop with the first one you see, right? Take a good walk around. Move your body through space. Mm-hmm. Look at things from different perspectives, literally, literally, literally. And right. that will help you to make a better decision. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that we... Maybe we don't have strong confidence in our ability to find another group yeah maybe we don't have um maybe we haven't allotted ourselves enough time to Mm. go and discover where other communities of a particular plant are um so that we can compare who can best um who can best sacrifice some of its members Mm -hmm. um and i don't think those are good excuses to just oh well i'll just do this yeah it's not it's not a good reason right now, when we talk about wildcrafting, um, there's frequently a uh, a rubric or a rule of thumb that people will give out, and it takes the form of something like: uh, when you look at a, at a at a community or a stand of herbs that you want to gather, you should take no more than fill in the blank percent, right? 
and I remember you hear wildly varying percentages from different different teachers. When you know, twenty years ago when I was learning this in rural Vermont, it was a third, a third, a third. One mm. third for you, one third for the animals, one third for the plant, which is to say to reseed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine if you're the only human who's going to stumble across this really huge patch of whatever. But um, first off, I don't actually, it's not even fine anymore because with climate change, I don't think that really any any community of plants can can stand to lose a third of its members yeah. um, for humans. But also, um, you know, most of us aren't living in that kind of a environment. So I think that if you are stewarding a... Uh, some wild plants on your own property and you know for sure that you're the only one harvesting there and you are carefully watching, then you still can't say to take one third. You have to say, I can have some, the animals can have some, and the plants can have some, and every year I need to make a determination about what those appropriate percentages are based on the factors involved in this plant's ability to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am really reluctant to to give a number to this, you know. Um call it 10%. Well, what does no, that mean? You know, is yeah. that going is that going to work every year? No, it is something you need to assess each and every time that you go up. I think that putting a number to it is like um we want to because it's a shortcut. That it's exactly what I'm trying. Yeah. But that, shortcuts like, are a problem because there's only the hard way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because like if you're like, oh, well, Rin said I can have 10%, then you're not going to think through every factor. And you can't have 10% of every plant that you see. So you can have no percent, right? Like you, instead, when you see some plants, just recognize that you have to justify what you take every single time. You have to make sure that it is legitimate every single time. And even... Well, because someone I know is really sick and this could help them is not necessarily a good answer because why is that person's life worth more than this plant's life? That's something you need to think about. Hmm. And especially because these days we can cultivate so many plants that we can work with in so many ways. Like taking a wild plant, I, I really do. Why is, why, why is that life worth more than this life? Even the things that we use to justify things where it's like, well, no, but this time it's okay because it's really important. Well, why is what I think really is really important more important than what's really important for this plant? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we do need to know the know the community. And um, like you say, are there going to be other people coming by? It's It's totally possible that you come along, you see something that, that looks pretty good to you. You say, all right, I can... Can harvest a lot here. I can harvest ten percent or, or whatever it is, and then you do that, and then a week later somebody else comes by and they see it and they have the same thought, mm. you know. And now it gets really cut down. So you want to be clear about like who else might be coming along this way. And again, that's not really something you can do from your first visit. Um, no. I don't want to be a broken record, but you have to observe an area of land over an extended period of time before it's really ethical to harvest from there. I mean it. It, it's just like, what kind of herbalist do you want to be? Do you want to just take stuff because you need it today? Or do you want to be in community and in relationship 
and in connection with. And that's really what herbalism is about. That's what we're striving for. And so we need to strive for that in every aspect of how we are herbalists. And um, and that's going to include all the way to how are the workers on the farms that that produce this organically cultivated calendula treated. Like it, yeah. it really, it, it's big, it's big. Um, but, but we're capable of big. <laughs> we are like, um, that is part of the work as herbalists is to, to get back to that place where we can hold the big picture in our minds. And we aren't just like, well, I can't think about all that, so I'm just going to do what I need to do for myself. Mm-hmm. No, we can think about all that. We actually can. We've got these big brains. And I think part of the reason is so that we can hold the big picture in our minds and hold many factors in our minds. And so I guess I am saying this because when it feels hard and when it feels inconvenient and painful to think about all these different factors just to make a decision about whether or not I can have this thing I want today. Instead of feeling upset about that, we can actually feel delight in that. And we can say, yeah, you know what? I'm capable of this amount of thought. And when I get to the end of the thought, I'm capable of doing something about it Hmm. and changing a situation that that I think is not right. Yeah. So, I don't know. So be excited about the inconvenience, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Nice. Um, you know, and like you said, you have to think about who else might see you, right? And what kind of lessons they might take, um, whether they speak to you or not, if they just observe, oh, look, there's somebody digging up that root over there. Maybe that's good. Maybe I could do that too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be conscious about, about how that kind of thing goes down. Um, there's also a place here that is going to be a little bit different. So this is when sometimes it makes sense to harvest a plant that otherwise you would leave alone because of some influence from the community at large. So um, the example that I've been thinking about this morning was that we were just out um, a few weekends ago with one of our student groups, and we were over at that patch of land close to the school. And um, there's, like we've been saying, there's a patch of Solomon seal that grows over there. And we go back and visit it every year, and it's really exciting to see them all come up. Um, and it's right next to a path that has pretty heavy foot traffic. Um, and we were there this year and we observed as we have in, in other years that there were some, um, shoots of the Solomon seal that were coming up and they were right in the path. They were not just kind of on the edge of it. They were totally in it. And some of them were already getting trampled. Right. You know, and so we looked at it and we said, okay, uh, Check it out, students. This is a place where it makes sense to harvest um, or to gather the Solomon seal from. And what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to dig this one up that's most at risk of getting stomped on, and we're gonna we're gonna transplant it. We're gonna bring it home and and plant it in a safe spot over by the fence next to our apartment, uh, where we've got a bunch of others that we had already been growing in there. And we're gonna we're gonna save this plant basically. <laughs> right? It's a rescue mission. Um, so something like that, that is in, it's kind of an exception, uh, but it's not really, it's just taking the broader principles into, into account and say, I recognize that this isn't actually a safe place, place for you, little plant. Like this plant would otherwise die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
And that's, um, you know, that's a, a way that you can also interact with your human community. Um, we are affiliated with the people who care for that land. And we check in with them a lot. Um, we, you know, we go to the community day. We do all, the, all of that stuff. And so every couple of years, I talk to the person in charge of maintaining that land and say, hey, it's a really good time to dig up all the Solomon seal roots that are that are encroaching on the path uh, on the next community day. Can I come and dig those out and then we'll repair the path and then uh, I can take those roots and grow them. And so that's great. And it's just the right time to do it because here's all the workers and everybody can see like, oh, yes, here are the workers who are taking care of the land. Mm -hmm. And then I am part of that group so that nobody's like, oh, well, she's digging all that stuff up. Right. Like it's it's the right context for it. Yeah. Um, and you can do this in many ways. There may be land that you know is going to be mowed, but there's nettle growing there, and it's going to get to be like six or eight inches tall before they mow it, and that's definitely plant material you could be working with. And so you could find out, like, what is the mo- Make friends with the, with the city worker who mows it and figure out what his schedule is or, or her schedule or their schedule is. And... Um, and then go harvest it, you know, like right before it gets mowed. Even talk to them about it. Uh, we've done that even with the garlic mustard, you know, on, mm-hmm. on community garlic mustard removal day. We've been like, oh, we will take a ton of that garlic mustard because we'll eat it. Yeah. And so that kind of stuff is, it's a way that you can be more involved in your human community so that you can work more with your plant community. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, in, in other contexts, people even do a similar thing if there's like, you know, a patch of, of forested land that's going to be clear cut to put in a condominium or I don't know what, yeah. um, you, you know, if, if you live somewhere where there is that kind of, um, uh, I don't know, human settlement expansion going on, <laughs> then you may want to contact the people who, who own or are going to be developing that land and say, look, um, would you allow me to go into that area and look for at-risk plants? I mean, there could be ginseng growing in there. There right. could be and then there you could, could be chaga on the them. trees. There could be, I mean, all kinds of things going on. Yeah, um, that's actually a really good way to work with chaga too. Mm-hmm. Is if you want, I mean, chaga takes decades to to mature, and it's really not a sustainable. Um, uh, it's not exactly a mushroom. Um, I mean, it is, but it's not the sort of traditional mushroom that you have in your mind. Fungal body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's not really sustainable to work with the way that it is currently popular to do. But if you can make friends with some loggers who are cutting down the trees, they know what they're looking for. They're, they know what chaga is. Mm. And so if you talk to them and say, listen, if you find a tree with chaga on it, please call me. I will drop everything and come. If you're cutting that tree down anyway, then I will take the chaga. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good way to get chaga. Yeah. Um, there are many other ways that are not good ways. Please don't do those. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, in a city environment, I think about vacant lots. Right? Yeah. Because sometimes they've been vacant for like a decade and there's a whole ecosystem going on mm-hmm. in there, right? Mm-hmm. And now somebody's finally going to develop it and you see the sign go up and you're like, oh, it's going to happen soon, right? Call them up. Say like, hey, I see some useful plants in there. I'd like to go in and harvest and, you know, is that all right with you? And, you know, who knows what they'll say back, but you've made an effort, right? They might think you're weird, but they'll probably say whatever. That's fine. Yeah. 
Okay. All right, other thoughts on knowing your community? Knowing the community around a plant you might want to gather? Hmm. I think we got that. Might be it. At least that's the stuff to get you started. Yeah. So those were our one, two, three points, right? Know the plant, know the land, know the community. The secret is that there's a number zero on this list, you guys. Mm-hmm. Number zero is know yourself. So, you know, this isn't just like Nothai Te Sautan, you know, the, uh, uh, the, what was it? The principle from the Oracle at Delphi. <laughs> know who you are before you come asking me your your questions. Um, oh, but, but kind of it's exactly that it's, because it's, that's what's happening. <laughs> right? So here's some questions you want to ask yourself when you're thinking about wildcrafting or foraging. First of all, why do you want to do this? What is your motivation? Is it, oh God, because then I can get my plants for free. Yeah, please not that. You guys, no, they're not I mean, I, I understand that uh, living is expensive, but um, it would be better to wait a year, get the seeds, bring them and cultivate them and work that way. Like, you can garden dandelions. You can farm dandelions. Uh, so spread those seeds. Yeah. Spread those seeds on land that you can work with and then do it. Yeah, and again, this isn't to say that you know people who who do forage or do wildcraft because they can't they can't afford to buy them that they're bad people or anything. But you have to you have to be aware about your motivation on a deeper level. And there are plenty of folks I know who are hyped about wildcrafting because it looks like free stuff. Who and, don't, and don't they don't need the free stuff. They don't need free stuff. Yeah, that, that's that's what we're really talking about here. Yeah. I also think that, you know, like, well, if I wildcraft, it'll make me a real herbalist. But if I grow it in my garden, then I'm just, no, grow it in your garden. Please do that. Mm -hmm. Please do that. Yeah. So, you know, and your motivation, this isn't to say your motivation is always bad, but you need to know what it is first, right? To say, I'm motivated to go and do some wildcrafting because I want to have a, a deeper connection to the land that I live on. Um, again, even if it's right here in city land, right? I want to, mm. I want to feel more strongly connected to it. And it's hard for me to do that when I'm just on sidewalks and concrete, but I feel like this will be a way for me to make that connection. That's great. And that's true. But you got to recognize that making that connection includes all of that work we've been talking about up till this point, mm. right? All of that, trying to understand the land and understand the community. Um, that's, that's what that connection is built out of. Yeah. Right. The fact that you you pick something out of the ground or cut it cut it up with some scissors that's not what gives you that deep connection. Yeah, it's it's the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you want to wildcraft or forage because it's a plant that doesn't cultivate well. Mm-hmm. It's a plant that kind of only really grows in the wild, and which is should be giving you like big red blinky lights. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that it's not okay. It just means you have to be super careful and that you have to take your role as a steward really, really seriously um, so that you are protecting that plant and being able to come back to it over and over again. I'm thinking about um, ginseng in West Virginia. In the area that we go to do free clinics in um, where they've been affected by mountaintop removal, a lot of people dig roots and they dig up ginseng to sell. And um, a lot of people have been harvesting from the same 
patch of ginseng for literally generations and the knowledge of where it is but also more importantly how to steward it mm-hmm. has been passed down through all the generations and that is what we're talking about here that's what you really want but then you get people who might come in because it's valuable and they they'll poach or they'll you know they'll just wipe out an entire stand instead of very carefully taking the amount that the stand can can afford to sacrifice this year which is going to be different than the amount that could have it could afford to give you last year mm-hmm. and and really working to not just sustain that that ginseng community but to grow it to to steward it um is 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 what's needed when you're gonna forage or wildcraft from a plant that can't be cultivated right so it might not mean that you don't forage it it might mean that that it's like a five-year process before you forage your very first you know like <laughs> Could be. all right um but say you've you've checked in with yourself and you feel like your motivations are are clear and reasonable and everything and you know that this is about to get mowed and you're going to grab all those dandelion leaves before it gets mowed. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, you still want to ask yourself, what's your internal state when you're going out there to do this? And a big thing here is you don't want to do this in a rush, right? Because that's when you're going to skip steps. That's when you're going to be like, oh, well, um, no, it'd be okay. It'll be all right. Um, you want to plan more time than you actually think you're going to need. And I would advise you to plan much more. Mm. Um and that's that's just key because you don't want to be kind of like, okay, I have to go there and I have to get this thing and I have to dig it up real fast and then I'm going to go to my appointment and rush all around. You know, that's not going to lead to you bringing your, your presence to the, to the action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another thing to consider is how much do you really need or how much uh, can, you, can you even work with effectively, right? So if somebody goes out and they, they harvest, you know, 10 pounds of uh, some plants, some, I don't know, there's a million mullen roots over there, and they they really want to start working with mullen root. They heard it was great for, you know, uh, bulging discs in the spine, and they just want to have so much of it. So they go, and they see all these mullens, and they're like, great, this is on a, a place where, um, I don't know, there's been some construction going on, and there's a pile of disturbed earth, and it's all covered in mullins because that, that happens a lot. <laughs> and it's just like, great, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to take all of the mullen roots that there are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them home, and I'm going to make tincture out of them. And then you go ahead and you, you dig them all up, and you've got them there, and then you bring them home, and you realize that it's going to probably take you the next four days to wash and clean and chop mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and to actually process all of that that um, plant matter and then you're gonna have two gallons worth of tincture to make and now that's a whole bunch of vodka you've got to buy and everything else but then (laughs) what are you gonna do with two gallons of mullen root tincture that's more than any one human is gonna need for the rest of your entire life right with mullen root you don't even need large doses of it so you know you're not going to be taking this by the tablespoon or by the ounce per day you know you're gonna take 10 20 drops here and there so you need to understand a lot of different things, right? That's like, what am I going to do with this plant matter once I've got it home? Uh, can it even wait till I get it home, right? There's some plants where you've got to process and get it tincturing or, or whatever you're going to do right there in the field. So do you have the equipment for that with you? Um, do you have all the ingredients you need? 
um, you know, maybe some roots you might dig them up and need to clean them and chop them uh, as soon as possible because the more they dry out, the harder they become until it's like... Until you need a chainsaw right? or a sawzall to, yeah. To get through it, right? There, so, there, there's a lot of roots like that that you're like, oh man, it got too dry and now you're, now you're there with your sawzall trying to like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a mess. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I think about when I think about the sort of human desire to, oh, well, I better just get a little more just in case I run out, just in case of whatever, like we have this sort of scarcity mindset of will, will there be enough? Like, I don't know. I better get a little more so that I have enough. But I think that that is like a, a reflection of our um, like sort of self-induced limitation on variety. Hmm. And, you know, mullein root's not the only plant that can do that work. And Solomon seal is not the only plant that can do that work. And there's like there's so many different plants. Or if we think about respiratory ailments, like there's so many plants that can that can do that work. And so we don't need to have a gallon of each one. We can just have a little of each one. And that's that it will be sufficient. And if you run out and you don't have exactly what you need, that's actually a fun game that we love to play at, at the school in the apothecary, is that sometimes we got really busy and we didn't place the herb order and then we were out of a bunch of stuff and now it's time for a free clinic. <laughs> and we're out of a lot of things. And for a minute we're like, oh, bummer. And then we're like, no, this is great. Because now the students are working to formulate with maybe like not their number one fa- favorite, I don't have to think about it, I'll just grab for it plant. And it's causing them to really think a little bit more and reach out to the plants that they maybe don't work with on as frequent a basis. So I don't know, you guys, it's kind of good to run out of things. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so those are those are a few of the things you need to consider about about your own your own internal state, your motivations, your intentions, um, and make sure that you're really clear on that uh, again before you go out and start cutting anybody up. Yeah. And if you're feeling like, wow, this was kind of a downer, I guess maybe I should just not wild harvest anything. Um, That's not a downer because you have a camera and you have a you and you can be in relationship with a plant without harvesting it. And you should be in relationships with plants without harvesting them. So More often than the other way. Yeah, yeah. So if you're feeling like sad because what you really love to do is go out and see the plants then do that. Go out and see the plants and take like 10 million pictures and get like the best picture and then post it on Instagram and tell everybody how much you love it. And that's that's excellent. And take your notebook and draw lots of pictures of that plant and just lay there and take a nap with that plant and, you know, like sit and just observe that plant a lot and look at the bugs who live with that plant and what are they doing and all these different things are the medicine too. I'm just remembering a workshop that Karen Sanders gave once a long time ago. And she said that, um, you know, we all, she was talking about Solomon Seal in particular, but she was saying about how, yeah, you, you take it and you take it internally. But if you really have a relationship, then you don't actually need to take it. You just go and you 
um, spend time with that plant and you ask that plant to help you because actually we're all connected and you don't have to ingest the plant to do the work. And I think that is really beautiful and I also think that it's really difficult to to sort of depend on that. It's hard to believe it. It's hard to... Um, like because we're so busy and so distracted, it's almost like we need that direct infusion in order to to do the work. But mm. um, but on the other hand, there have been times, you know, in the subway where it was packed and I was crammed in and feeling panicked, and that I just said, "All right, well, I'm going to think about the plants who would normally help me right now with these feelings of panic." And I don't have any of them. Maybe there's one in my backpack, but I can't even get to my backpack because we're so packed in here. And so I'm just going to sit here and think about those plants. Just conjure an image of the betony yes. that we like to, to, to grow here and keep around and bring with us when we go to the local herb conference. Yeah, because it's so pet, calming yes. and soothing just to have it there. And, and you can call to mind the feeling of the leaves on your fingers yeah. and the smell of the flower and everything. Yeah, and it turns out that's really, really helpful. And, and you know, I mean, and here's Karen Sanders talking about doing that even on a physiological level, not just on an emotional level. And, and like, I too find that difficult right now, but I also find it beautiful. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, so go out and forage experience. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, so uh, those are our thoughts for this week. Um, we hope you found them interesting. And um, if you have questions, as always, we'd like to hear from you, the listeners. Yes. Um, you can always reach out to us through our website, commonwealthherbs.com. And um, I guess that's it for the week. I am really excited because um, May happens next week. And wow. we have decided on a theme for the supporter videos for May and we're going to do May flowers and talk about all different herbs that bloom in May and how to work with them and I'm so excited about it so um so all of you supporters that's the videos that are going to be coming to you in May and if you want those videos then you too can be a podcast supporter um you can check out our website commonwealthherbs.com Uh, slash podcast and you'll see a button right there that tells you how to do that yeah we really like it (laughs) thank you okay so we'll be back next week happy days